Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. And we're going to talk about science communication with New Zealander of the Year, Dr. Susie Wiles. She's an associate professor on the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at Auckland University in New Zealand. So welcome to the podcast, Susie. Thanks for having me. I think it's fantastic. I was really excited to have you accept because we've had several people request that the podcast interview you. <laughs> Um, we, uh, you know, we do a weekly podcast and it's heavy duty in the, a lot of the deep dive into science, but do a lot of talk about communication and there's where our Venn diagram overlapped. <laughs> and so, so tell me a little bit about, um, you know, how did, how did you get to, uh, New Zealand first of all? Um, so I'm originally from the UK and, uh, I, um, the thing that many New Zealanders do is they travel overseas. And uh, so I met my now husband while he was traveling, well, while he was studying in the UK. Uh, and um, when our child was born, <laughs> he said he, wa- he wanted her to grow up in New Zealand. And so we moved here about 11 years ago when she was three. Um, yeah. And it was interesting because I was at Imperial College in London and um, many of my colleagues thought I was absolutely crazy to leave. Um you know, I was well-funded. They were like, why on earth are you going to this little place in the middle of nowhere, um, the bottom of the world? And they had a point, <laughs> but it turns out actually it's been a really good move. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I've never been there, but I've seen pictures. <laughs> I got to do it someday, but it's a long ride. It is a long ride. <laughs> well, but your your original claim to fame was working in bioluminescence and infectious disease. And tell me a little bit about the Bio, bioluminescence thing, because I'm, I'm a big fan, either from fireflies and just being able to produce photons from chemistry, but also things like green fluorescent protein, which I use basically every day. So tell me more about how you use bioluminescence in your work. Yeah, so I've, um, I mean, I was one of those kids who absolutely loved things that glowed. Um, and so I did my undergraduate degree um, in uh, infectious diseases. And when it came to looking for a PhD program, program um, I got offered a project that was basically making bacteria glow in the dark to look at pollution. So with bioluminescence, it's this chemical reaction that produces light as a byproduct. And um, the creatures that make that chemical reaction, they will only glow when they're alive. Um, so uh, it uses um, some of the reactions use ATP, others use um, FMNH2 from the electron transport chain. And so uh, we use it in microbiology basically as a kind of quick way to tell whether bacteria are dead or alive. And so I did my PhD in that, um, realized I absolutely loved bioluminescence and, the, and using it for science, but really wasn't that interested in industrial pollution and environmental microbiology. And so when it came to looking for postdoc positions, um, really was looking for something where I could 
you know, combine those two interests. Um, and the fir- one of the first positions I saw was a postdoc to make the bacteria that causes tuberculosis glow in the dark. And then that's essentially become my career. So I, I work on lots of different bacteria. Um, we make them glow and then we use them for all sorts of different purposes. So at the moment I have, I guess, two main research projects going on in my lab. Um, one of them is uh, looking for new antibiotics. So we use that, you know, uh, are they dead or alive? Are they glowing or not? Um, to find new chemicals that might kill bacteria. Um, and then the other really cool thing about light is it travels through flesh and skin. So, you know, if you put your hand over the top of a torch, you see light coming out the other side. And so there are these amazing, um, really sensitive CCD cameras that can look at bioluminescence uh, from within living creatures. So we can basically take our bacteria that we've engineered to glow, put them inside of animals, and then look, you know, in a really non-invasive way using far fewer animals where um, our bacteria are, when they're causing an infection, you know, can our drugs to get get to them and kill them while they're causing an infection rather than just, you know, in a, in a flask in the lab. That's really cool. So can we talk more about the biochemical basis of bioluminescence? You know, I know luciferase. So the, the flyer, the firefly enzyme that uses a substrate and ATP to produce uh, photons. Are there other unique ways to do this or is everything kind of like a different form of luciferase? Yeah, so the so I guess the luciferase and luciferin are both the generic terms for those chemicals in the in the reaction, but also the name that was specifically given to the ones from fireflies. So luciferins, there are lots of different types of lucifer luciferins chemically, and then there are lots of different types of luciferases. So um, in my lab, we uh, we use the one from fireflies for um, TB stuff, but for everything else, we use um, the reaction that bacteria use. So there are tons and tons of bacteria that glow in the ocean. Um, think of the anglerfish. So the anglerfish's light that comes from a bacteria that lives in this little pocket, fleshy pocket on the end of their um, fishing line. Um, and that reaction, so the luciferase enzyme is kind of like a two subunit enzyme and it takes a fatty acid sorry, an aldehyde, and it converts it to a fatty acid. And then the bacteria have another three, um, they have three genes that make this enzyme complex that then recycles the fatty acid back into aldehyde. And so that that require, um, that um, reaction also uses oxygen and then this um, FMNH2 from the electron transport chain. So yeah, it's quite a different chemical reaction. Um, and it's evolved many, many times. So there's, there's loads of different... Um, classes of, of reaction. I don't know huge amounts more about the other ones. There's one that uses a substrate called cilentrazine, um, but it's basically an oxidation reaction that has light as a byproduct. Yeah, we've used cilentrazine too for uh, bioluminescent assays. I just think it's so cool because we used to use this stuff uh, in plant biology to monitor circadian rhythms. Yes. Because you, you yes, yeah, you could take a, uh, a promoter that was on during one time of the day and off during the yeah. other time of the day. You had to run luciferase and look for the plants that are doing it wrong and then learn from that. So it's really a cool technology and I've always just adored it and I never knew much about it. But you're using it to um, probe infectious disease and you're saying in your laboratory and what you do, you're, you're using it for this dead and alive assay. But um, how many different diseases can you test with this? Does it work in all different bacteria backgrounds? Oh, um, 
That's a great question. <laughs> so uh, it really depends on the bacteria. Um, so one of the reasons we originally started using the firefly luciferase for our TB work is that, uh, you know, micro the mycobacteria have got these um, fatty acid cell walls. So they're quite different from other bacteria. And what we found is if we put this, uh, so the, the, the bacterial um, luciferase uh, operons called lux, and if we put these lux genes in, then uh, on a plasmid, and so they were basically overexpressing these this enzyme complex that uh, recycles fatty acids into aldehyde. Basically, we the, the bacteria wouldn't survive. But once we integrated it in the chromosome, so it's just got a single copy. Actually, we now can get them to do that. So um, there are yeah, there are other bacteria. So because it takes you know it requires energy, some of the bacteria um, are less fit <laughs> than they would be. Um, the most of the bacteria that I work with, actually, it's it's fine. You know, you tweak around with promoters and various things, and so that you can get them to um, uh, to glow. I'm trying to think if there's there's things that we've struggled with. Um, I mean, the ones there are there are ones that are difficult to engineer, but I don't think that's inherent to the Lux operon. It's more just some bacteria are really hard to get it in a place where it isn't going to impact on their fitness. Basically, almost all the bacteria that are considered um, real threats in terms of antibiotic resistance are the ones that we've got tagged and are busy using in my lab. And you can tell me if this is true about bacteria, but in plants, uh, luciferase is relatively unstable, that once you uh, create the enzyme that has a short half-life. So if you really want to study something in real time, like is it alive right now or is it dead now? You know, you, you have the a very high time resolution with using that kind of a tool. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the um, original things that I have done sort of science communication wise was um, uh, uh, going into schools or, you know, uh, at sort of science fairs um, and getting uh, getting the public to um, choose things like disinfectants or fruit juices or whatever, uh, you know, Coca-Cola, stuff like that. And then we'd have little vials of, um, of a harmless bacteria, so not, not one that we've engineered, but one that naturally glows, um, and then get them to uh, basically, you know, go, in, go into a little dark room and see their little vials all glowing and then pick some products add that to their vial, close it up, give it a shake, and then go back into the dark room. And by the time they go back into the dark room, if it's something that will kill the bacteria, they're already dead and the lights are gone. So it's a it's a really, really fast, really fast reaction. It's amazing. <laughs> That's really cool. So the reason that you're using this is as a kind of a biological reporter for the use of antibiotics or for the efficacy of antibiotics. And you've uh, explored antibiotics, but more importantly, antibiotic resistance. And can you give me a little hint about what that looks like in, in your program, but also the book that you've written on the subject? Um, so in my lab, we have this really cool antibiotic discovery project, um, and we are trying to find new antibiotics from New Zealand fungi. So one of the reasons we think fungi are a good source, a potential source of new antibiotics, is that the, one of the first antibiotics ever discovered, penicillin, comes from a fungus, penicillium. Um, and here in New Zealand, there's a, there's been over about the last 50 or 60 years, this um, really cool collection of fungi that's been uh, collected from all around the country. Um, and it's just stored in liquid nitrogen in one of our Crown Research Institutes. Um, and it's never been searched for, for antibiotics against you know, human pathogens. So I teamed up with their, um, the curator of that collection, who's an awesome fungi expert, and uh, we're hoping because New Zealand has been geographically isolated from the rest of the world for so long, you know, we have plants and animals 
that are found nowhere else in the world, right? <laughs> All of our flightless <laughs> birds and things like that. And so the same might be true of our fungi, that we have fungi that have evolved differently here. And so we're hoping that maybe they've evolved some different chemistry um, and that we might find that. So we just get these, there's about 10,000 or 11,000 fungi in the collection. We're probably about, I don't know, 800 in maybe. We've got, we found lots of novel compounds, um, but only a few of them have got antibiotic activity. Um, but we've still got a long way to go. So yeah, it's a pretty, pretty exciting project really. Well, how, how dire is the situation with respect to antibiotic resistance? And, you know, I, you hear about it, but if I go to the doctor with an infection, the first thing they do is give me a course of antibiotics and yeah. tell me to take it as prescribed. Yeah. So um, I guess first, it, it all depends on the bacteria. So there are some bacteria where um, the it, they're still very much treatable, but the 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 treatment might have gone from, you know, a course of oral antibiotics that you might take for a week, now might be an injectable antibiotic and, and a course of oral antibiotics or um, for tuberculosis, for example, you know, there's um, resistant strains of that that go from needing kind of six months of treatment to more like two years of treatment. And some of those treatments you need to have intravenously, so they require, you know, hospitalization. Um, so many of them are becoming more difficult to treat and more expensive to treat. But there are some strains that are now more or less untreatable. So these are things like um, some forms of E. coli and Klebsiella. Um, and basically, if you end up with them in your bloodstream and it's a resistant form, then um, that's a very, very, very serious thing. And there have certainly been plenty of deaths from those. Um, the, so... It's one of these things where it hasn't, it isn't impacting most people yet. Um, but, you know, I think that it was something like 2014 was when the WHO did their first proper report on resistance. And the prediction then was, you know, within 10 years, things are going to become, you know, untreatable. Um, nothing much has changed. Things are still pretty much, you know, on that, on course for that. But actually what COVID-19, COVID-19 has possibly accelerated it. So, you know, in the certainly in the first wave um, in many countries, you know, in hospitalized patients, many, many of them were given antibiotics, um, partly, I think, to, you know, because patients were presenting with pneumonia. When when people have a viral pneumonia, they can also have uh, end up with secondary bacterial infections. So some of those things might be just be trying to keep, you know, patients from getting worse. Um and so that massive overuse of antibiotics, which I guess continues, possibly continues to this day with all the cases there are around the world, may well be, you know, accelerating that resistance. So it's a, it's a frightening thing, but it's something that isn't really impacting many people yet. But when it does, it's going to be quite terrifying. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine what it's going to be like, you know, to go to the doctor and actually there isn't anything that they can do. And it might be something like, you know, gonorrhea is becoming one of the untreatable ones. Um, I mean, what's it going to be like to have untreatable gonorrhea? I mean, that's, that's you know, highly unpleasant um, and, and leads to infertility, right? So these are, these are things that are, um, I think at the moment we just can't imagine. And then, you know, if we don't have antibiotics and can't prevent infection in vulnerable patients, we'll, we're going to see people, you know, who are on chemotherapy or who are needing surgery um, end up dying from an infection, uh, you know, so whatever was done to try and save them actually might not save them in the end. And that's, you know, it's going to be quite a different thing for us, I think. Well, how much success are research groups like yours having? 
are we actually identifying new candidate compounds that may serve a role or do they always turn out to have some sort of, um, uh, you know, collateral uh, sensitivity with the human cellular environment itself? There, so I'm seeing lots and lots of papers published, you know, over the last few years, there's been all sorts of new um, antibiotics discovered. Um, but it's the, it's the, it's, you know, it's a long path from uh, discovery to the clinic. And we know that at every stage, things fail, right? So, you know, we might have something that works really well in the lab, but once you get to toxicity testing, or once you get to a, you know, an actual infection, it doesn't, it's not quite as effective. Um, so we need more discovery happening and we need more compounds kind of going into that pipeline. But what we've also seen um, is that many companies who were picking up those compounds and trying to move them to the next stages, you know, when they if they were little startups, have actually gone bust. Um, you know, we know it's expensive to do this work uh, and there isn't massive investment in it. Um, and so I, I wonder, I mean, we've, we've you know, we've, the, what the pandemic has shown us, which I think is something we knew all along, is that our current model for how we do drug development is broken. You know, the fact that we have people, we have vaccines now and we can't get them out to the world equitably because companies are controlling who manufactures them and where. You know, we have exactly the same, we, we will have exactly the same issue with antibiotics. Um, but also, you know, we have this process where everybody's trying to, you know, has to go through all of these different trials, which obviously have to be done. But what the pandemic has shown us is that if money is no object, you, and you can do those things quite fast, right? So it's it's still something that it feels like not many companies, big companies that can weather um, that risk of whether something's going to make it to clinic are, are into, because it doesn't make an economic sense under the current model, you know, to be spending billions on products that, the bacteria will at some point become resistant to because that's what they do, right? They evolve. Um, so we also need sort of policies around wise use of antibiotics. So what's the best way to use them so we get the most out of them? Um, and it's just it just feels like a problem at the moment that nobody that needs a global solution. Nobody's really, uh, really got their head around how you would solve it yet. And now I think it's gone completely to the wayside because of COVID. Yeah, but the nice part is, you know, as you mentioned, if there is a silver lining, is that maybe it has illuminated the failure of the system, and that maybe teaches us that we better be buying our raincoat a few months before the rain clouds form. And if we start, if we start to invest in these kinds of technologies, that maybe we could have two separate mechanisms of action to administer at once, so that it really decreases the likelihood of resistance. Yeah, absolutely. Which is the thing that has to be done with TB therapy. That's why tuberculosis is treated with basically four drugs, right? So they have to do this in order to stop resistance from emerging. Um, so yeah, to be able to, I, I think we need to completely change our relationship with these drugs. You know, antibiotics have are really cheap, right? They they um, and and people take them so that we've had them, I guess, for so long, and they've been administered in such a way that they've lost their value. And so I don't think you know people don't think twice about the fact that a cancer drug might cost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars but they would be really surprised if they were charged thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for an antibiotic right so we've we've devalued them but also we know the current system doesn't work and i i'm not sure I, i'm not sure i have as much optimism at the moment because you know nothing 
it doesn't feel like anything's being done to fix the system, even just to get through the crisis that we're currently in. You know, the fact that the companies and countries are blocking South Africa and India's um, you know, petition to the World Trade Organization to, to stop patents so that they can start making the vaccines. I mean, that's like if any, if, you know, if there was a time to show a commitment to the fact that this model is broken, it's now and it doesn't feel like places are doing that. Am I being too pessimistic? No, you know, I think you're being realistic. Um, you know, th- this is a view that this whole pandemic has been such a mess because, well, for lots of reasons we can articulate in a minute. But, you know, as you point out, it's these kinds of policy decisions that stop the dissemination of good technology that really make me upset because, and also the inequitable distribution of the resources. Mm. I'm getting a shot. You know, I mean, I'm getting my vaccine and I'm a little bit mad because I've been told by my government that I need to teach class, be there in person with students who are out partying and having a good time. And, uh, which, which is fine. I did it. It's great. Now I got the vaccine, but you know, there's people who are, have much more risk factor than I do who didn't. And so the fairness and the equity of that is something that really bothers me. And to hear that there are, uh, policy barriers that are in place that even exacerbate that really is bad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yes, it's the the other thing that's also I think broken um, is just how we do science in many ways. You know, the the um, what really frustrates me is that we um, we spend a lot of time chasing dead ends, uh, you know, and not reporting those because there really isn't very much of a mechanism to report those. Um, or we're doing things in competition, and so you get scooped, and it's not really the best use of our time and resources. So, for example, we've got a couple of um, uh, lead compounds. We've got a couple of things we need to try and fix, like we need to understand about them before we can say these are our lead compounds. But what's the point of my lab trying to spend the next however many years trying to get funding to move those compounds forward when we need them moved forward? So I'm really keen to do that in a more kind of open science model and to say, you know, who has the skills to help us move these forward who wants to take different parts of the project and do that and can we do this in the open so we know who's doing what and we're not going to replicate you know either dead ends or or end up in a kind of position where people are working on you know multiple people are working on the same thing and it's a waste of resources and when I mentioned this to my head of department as a kind of a way that I wanted to move this project forward he was horrified he's like well what about the IP and what you know what about this and what about that and it's like yeah but we know that model doesn't work so why would we not try something else um so yeah so I'm, I'm i'm also keen to really that we really rethink the way we do research because the way we do it at the moment is is very much about furthering people's careers rather than actually solving the problems we face in the most optimal way does that make sense <laughs> oh it totally does I, I but the nice part is is i think you can do both at the same time that if you are open and um, and are a good citizen, if people understand your intents and you're a good team builder and a good manager, team leader, you can actually get the right team together to really accelerate a project. And you know maybe you're you know instead of being second author on a page on a paper with two authors, you're the you know seventy fifth. <laughs> um, but you know but you're the you're the submitting contributing author. Um, you know, that's what happened to me, but, but that's fine because it still was something I couldn't have done by myself as fast. 
And, and maybe it's the modern face of everything else in the world becoming collaborative and fast. As long as we're not compromising our students' training by making them focus on one area, you know, to be an expert and not get that, you know, head to tail experience of solving a question, you know, yeah. maybe there's a model in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I wanted to talk about what you do is because I really wanted people to understand that you are a, a functioning research scientist, because I know the feeling of, uh, I go into a room where people know me from communicating science and then they'll say, oh, you're the podcast host, or you're the guy who tells us what we do wrong when we try to connect with the public. And they don't know that I actually am a real researcher. And then the people in research don't know that I do science communication. So there's this weird, you know, uh, stigma you carry <laughs> um, with, with, with your, the audience you know, right? So I wanted to get, I want people to know that you actually are practicing the uh, disciplines by which you preach. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Susie Wiles. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, Fulta, what are you doing? I'm reading about a biotechnology conference in Bolivia. It's coming up on May 15th. You're traveling to Bolivia? (laughs) Nice job, Dr. Super Spreader ain't going anywhere in public or on an airplane sky. No, it's not that at all. It's virtual, which is great because it's all the science and none of the hassle and expensive travel. And no more conference swag bags and tumblers just end up in a landfill. It's information exchange without the carbon and plastic crap footprint. But your Spanish is awful. How can it possibly be productive? I've been to several conferences in Spanish-speaking countries, and for me, it's a great way to practice my Spanish, especially since Sabado Gigante went off the air. It's amazing how well I can understand because the context is science. All of the graphs and all of the information translates really well, and I can take notes in Spanish, and it really helps me improve my communication with a significant part of the world. And a huge number of people speak Spanish anyway, so maybe they don't know about Bolivia and the Scientific Biotechnology Conference, so that's why we're talking about it. Bolivia is the cradle where many of our best fruit and vegetable crops come from, things like tomatoes, potatoes, and dozens of others. I don't know much about the area. Only that my mom smacked me when I was a kid when I said Lake Titicaca. That's the problem. Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, other South American nations are amazing for biological diversity, spectacular for agriculture, and scientists are working hard to preserve native varieties as well as use the newest techniques to make farming more sustainable. But this conference is much more. It's about the environment. It's about medical, about pharmacy, veterinary medicine. There's a lot happening in Bolivia. Where can I learn more? Just visit Biotechnologia Bolivia for more information. The conference will cover everything from environment to medicine, nutrition, and nanotechnology. Or follow on Facebook at Congreso Bolivia Innova. This is an unpaid advertisement as a favor for the conference, as there's lots of great biotechnology happening in Bolivia. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Susie Wiles. She's an associate professor in the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And in addition to everything she does in the laboratory, she also is recognized as a New Zealander of the Year, probably mostly because of your efforts in communicating science. And you've been 
Well, let's start at the beginning. When did you start really interacting with the public in a science communication capacity? Uh, so for me, it was about 2005, 2006, when um, I won uh, an award in the UK for my research. Um, and so this involves uh, use of animals and science. Uh, and the organization um, called the National Center for the Three R's, um, they said, right, you know, you've got this award and now we want you to talk about your research more. Um, and so they gave me some media training um, and uh, started getting me talking to school kids about my research. Um, and then a few years later, I moved to New Zealand. And so when I arrived, I was like, right, <laughs> what can I do? Uh, and um, being in a new place, I um, I was offered the opportunity to start blogging. And so I started blogging. Um, I worked with a, a, a kind of animator in Australia called Luke Harris to make some animations about uh, fireflies and other glowing creatures and how we use that light in science. Um, and it's just sort of escalated from there, really. One of somebody, an artist saw one of those videos and that led to me then doing collaborations with artists um, and so I've, I guess I've sort of spent the last, I mean, really 10 years uh, just sort of building this appreciation for the importance of communication so that I very much feel now that, you know, as a publicly funded scientist, um, it, the public have a right to know what I do with their money, uh, but also that science doesn't end with the publication of a peer-reviewed journal article, right, that, uh, that actually there are many more people beyond our peers who need to understand what we've done. And so I just worked really hard at building those skills of learning how to talk to different um, audiences. And for me, there's been a real, uh, also a real, um, I guess, relationship built up with the media. So, you know, New Zealand's quite tiny and we don't have specialists in everything. And so as a result of my uh, blogging, I ended up being one of the kind of go-to microbiologists when, whenever there was anything microbiology related happening in New Zealand or around the world. So when Zika virus happened, when there was the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, you know, I'm one of the first microbiologists that journalists will call to say, hey, explain this story to us. And that's exactly what started happening to me during COVID-19. So in mid-January, journalists started calling up going, so what's this mystery virus in China? Um, <laughs> And I just thought it was going to be like everything else. Like, oh, yeah, no, I can explain this and it'll all be over in a few weeks, right? But I think two weeks later, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is escalating fast. Um, yeah, and then it's and then it's just sort of, I started, so I started doing a lot of media um, here in New Zealand, but also I've done overseas stuff. I started writing a lot because I, I really like writing because at least you can then put all of your thoughts and all of your references and everything in there rather than you know when you do a media interview it ends up being a sort of 30 second soundbite um, and then through that writing I ended up collaborating with a cartoonist called Toby Morris and we have basically made you probably will have seen one of our cartoons if you didn't realize it was us <laughs> um, yeah we've and we've basically covered everything we started with flatten the curve uh, and um, our stuff has gone viral, so to speak, around the world. And now Toby and his team are doing graphics for the World Health Organization. That's fantastic. I, I love those cartoons. <laughs> I thought they were, well, they're, they're, they really hit the nail on the head with respect to the balance of content versus timing versus my attention span. <laughs> you know, like, I, like, like, you know, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. Tell it to me in 10 to 30 seconds. Yeah. And those just roll it out. And, and, but they suck you in at the same time. So yeah, the longer one. 
I mean, Toby is a master communicator. You know, he's a really visual person. And so his job has been, you know, to take the science that I explain and then to go, okay, right, what's the best way to visually explain this and, and the quickest way? What's the point we're trying to get across? Um, and the reason I, I wanted to work with Toby is because I've seen his work in the past and I really I really loved how he kind of drew you in and made you, made you care. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was so when I wanted to use illustration, um, it was really just to, to start explaining what that concept of flatten the curve was like. Um, I asked uh, whether, yeah, he would work with me. And then that's just started this thing that neither of us could have realized was going to turn into what it turned into. <laughs> but the good news is New Zealand has been really the success story on the planet of a nation or or any region that has successfully slowed down and, and really limited the penetrance of of the virus and so you know can you tell me a little bit more about what has happened in new zealand maybe how they got there and are you still there yeah uh so i guess so we are a, a collection of islands very far away from anywhere else i mean we do have a lot of travel happened so you know lots of people travel to us new zealand does travel a lot um, so what we had the benefit, though, I guess, of watching what was happening in China and Italy and Iran um, before the virus really hit us here. So um, essentially, we've got a government in, in position who um, decided that, uh, you know, we would take a, a health approach rather than an economic approach. Uh, to dealing with the virus we saw um, especially I guess in Italy when when Italy's first wave happened uh, we saw their health system overwhelmed um, here in New Zealand we don't have as many intensive care beds or doctors and nurses as Italy um, does uh, and we also know that we actually have lots of uh, vulnerable people in terms of diabetes and various things so we knew if the virus hit us like it was hitting Italy it would be absolutely devastating and we also knew that it would be devastating uh, you know um, along essentially ethnic lines. So we knew that our Māori and Pacifica populations would be much harder hit than um, everybody else. Uh, and so with that kind of, uh, I guess, time thing, it was like, right, okay, how do we stop that from happening? The, um, and essentially what we did was shut our borders to anybody but citizens uh, and permanent residents. And that remains uh, more or less to this day. <laughs> We've just opened a travel arrangement with Australia, but other than that, that's the only one. Um, and and basically, once we knew the virus had arrived, so once we knew we had community transmission, uh, we went into one of the strictest lockdowns in the world. So basically, all businesses and schools were shut uh, unless um, you were an essential worker. And so that was people involved in food production, people involved in things like, you know, maintaining electricity, uh, transport, um, uh, healthcare, those kinds of things. Um, and everyone else stayed home. Uh, the government put in place a wage subsidy so that people still got paid while we were in that lockdown. And I think we were there for about four weeks and that basically brought our cases essentially down to zero. So in that time, we also had a really, really, um, really not a great track and trace system, I guess, you know, contact tracing and, and testing system. So that lockdown also gave us time to massively ramp up that and our testing capacity. Uh, and then we came out of it very slowly. So we, um, the the after our four weeks of what we called level four, level three was basically like a um, was a sort of 
a lockdown, but with takeaways. So, you know, so we really gently stepped back to kind of normal life um, to make sure that we didn't have, uh, you know, any cases we had still in the community could be stopped using contact tracing and isolation. Uh, and so we got down to zero. Um, we, are, we have everybody who comes into the country goes into a two-week managed isolation uh, which is basically in a kind of four-star hotels <laughs> around the country. Um, and and really, that's kind of how we've been containing it. So um, we've been living um, like normal, but apart from not being able to travel overseas um, ever since. We've had little... So basically what, we, what we've had is some kind of incursions through the border. So we've had a couple of cases where there's been transmission in our managed isolation facility. And that means that somebody's done their 14 days, but kind of got infected in the middle and then they come out. And so every time we've had one of those, if it's not been able to be traced back to the border and contained using contact tracing and isolation, then we'll go into a mini lockdown where everybody stops moving um, to try and just see how big the outbreak is and see whether it can be contained. And that's what we've done. So we've spent relatively little time under actual restrictions. And now, you know, I mean, we've got big concerts going on. It's, I say, it's sort of normal life apart from not being able to travel overseas. And come, I think it's about a week's time, we'll be able to go to Australia without um, needing to do this quarantine on the way back. And it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's just amazing because we we know this is what works. Um, this was all, you know, uh, this elimination strategy was sort of what the epidemiologists were uh, proposing back in February last year. And I guess what's been really depressing has been to see that um, countries use restrictions the wrong way. So we've had, you know, they either don't use them hard enough for long enough that, you know, once you come out of the restrictions, you just allow cases to start growing again. Um, and so it, it's been really depressing to see countries opening up when you're like, oh, you know, you're just going to be back where you were um, soon, really. Um, and, with, and that's allowed, obviously, all the new variants to emerge. And it's, um, yeah, it's a bit, it feels very surreal being here and being able to do concerts, big, you know, big activities, and none of them are dangerous whereas in other places, it's still quite dangerous. That's the real irony, though, is that you listen to a lot of people here in the States, particularly in my state of Florida, they'll say that you just gave up all your freedom. <laughs> it kind of seems like you got your freedom. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is, I guess this has been a, one of the things that we've seen, um, uh, you know, people's individual freedoms pitted against the the, what's best for everyone and so yes we gave up our individual freedoms for those short weeks you know and we do give them up for you know five days at a time if we need to um in you know make sure that we know where an outbreak is and how big it is um but we're doing that to protect everyone and then that gives us freedoms uh you know that gives everybody then freedoms and the thing that the pandemic has shown us is that that those people who are able to stay safe are those who are privileged to be able to stay safe, right? They're not the ones who are stacking people's shelves or fulfilling their Amazon uh, orders. And um, and I really worry that, you know, that's my, my parents are in the UK. They've been isolated for over a year now, but they can do that because they're retired and they can do internet shopping, you know? And so the, the whole inequities and in who's impacted by this and those freedoms, you know, you get your freedoms, your personal freedoms, but somebody else dies for those. And 
and we made a different choice in New Zealand and it's uh, and it's been really sad to see people trying to knock us down and say you know you didn't you know you've you've you, this is all terrible and you, you're all um, living in some fantasy when if we'd all done this we would have been out of the pandemic by now and how's vaccination progressing in New Zealand so slowly, um, we had uh, we made purchase agreements with four companies: um, so Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson, and oh, one other one that I think is not approved yet. Um, but quite recently, the government switched and basically said we're now going to all have the Pfizer vaccine. So um, they have an agreement for that. Uh, the the um, they're coming in batches. So at the moment, they are rolling it out to everybody who works in uh, within our borders and managed isolation and quarantine facilities and their families. Um, and then the expectation is they'll start rolling it out to the rest of the com- country about the middle of the year. So that's when we're expecting more doses to come. Um, and, you know, I mean, for us, that gives us time to make sure that everybody feels the, you know, is on board with getting the vaccine. We know from the surveys here that probably about a third of people are hesitant, have some questions. Um, and so that gives us time to make sure that all their questions are answered. There's more data about how effective they are around transmission and um, and the new variants uh, before we sort of roll it out um, really yeah, widespread. But it's interesting because there's lots of um, talk from the other political parties, you know, why are we not doing this faster? And, you know, it's all a failure. Um, but actually, I think slow and steady is probably going to be best for us. You know, there's no there's no real urgency in terms of because we have no community transmission. Um, and it makes me wonder what people actually think is going to happen because, you know, that the Pfizer vaccine is not approved for anybody under 16. So we're still going to have a huge number of people who would be vulnerable to the virus once everyone else is vaccinated. Um, but it may well be that by the time uh, the middle of the year comes, there'll be more data from other countries that are doing those trials that says actually we can start vaccinating our under 16. So yeah, it's a, it's some people are really hesitant and others are like, you know, vaccinate me now, <laughs> but it's dependent on supply as well. I'm a vaccinate me now, but, but, <laughs> but I get a lot of communication you, right? around. Well, Oh yeah, because you're not safe. Whereas we are safe apart from not having any travel. So it's a very different feeling. And and I think this doing the stepped thing so that, you know, those who are most at risk are being vaccinated. And for us, that's everyone working around the borders, but for the rest of us, there's no risk. So it's, yeah, it's a very different thing. Well, here's the big question that I, I would love to hear how you're, how you approach this one, because I interact with a lot of people around the topic of vaccine hesitancy and I've done a lot of, I've done some consulting for companies and others about how do we get everybody on board because they want their workforce to be safe mm-hmm. and they don't want their workforce to be culturing variants that are going to work around the vaccine. And one of the things that I hear that I have a hard time answering is how do we know that five years from now, I'm not going to have a brain tumor or how do I know five years from now? And, it, and I know how to answer that as a scientist but I don't know how to answer that so well as a science communicator effectively. And how would you handle that? One? Yeah. Well, I guess we've got evidence from other vaccines that, that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> I know. Can you name any vaccine where five years later, there's something like that. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got years and years of, of, uh, of, of evidence on our side, I guess, in terms of, of that as being a risk. We do know, you know, just from a year into the pandemic, what the consequences of 
infection are. So we know that they are far, far worse. And we don't really even know the long-term consequences of that, right? So my big worry, and I think this will be borne out, is that, you know, in five years' time, we're going to see a huge number of people with neurological problems or with heart problems, you know, blood vessel problems and stuff. Um, so, you know, I think there's plenty of evidence suggesting that's going to be a thing, way more than than there is around vaccines. Um, the, the, the thing that we need to do a better job of is addressing disinformation and that's not by you know lots of people want want um things debunking and actually the research shows that debunking is probably one of the worst things we could do right the the you know by by repeating the myth the myth kind of grows what we need to do i think is get people to fully appreciate the scale of the um the what's the right word for it the the scale of what we face in terms of um, the disinformation uh, agenda, you know, the fact that there are people who are creating fake content uh, designed to frighten us, um, and that is and that is what is being shared, and what people see uh, is a result of this fake information and the way that social media platforms work and how they share this stuff. And I think if more people understood that, I'm hopeful that they would be more wary of the stuff that they see. You know, the, the, the um, I mean, it's incredible that, you know, something like two thirds of the vaccination disinformation can be basically attributed to something like 12 accounts. I mean, that's, that's, that's astonishing, right? right? That, that, and, so, and, and, and we could get rid of that in an instant, by just removing their platform. They are lying. So why would we not remove that stuff? I mean, that's, you know, and so how social media works and why we've allowed it to become so uh, dangerous is, I think, a, a real question for society. Um, and But getting people to think about, you know, what what is the agenda of these people? What are they pushing? Because it can often be very difficult to understand, right? Um and then, and then what's the agenda of the people who are trying to vaccinate us? Like, you know, we want to save lives and we would like us to, you know, to be able to live our lives safely. What's the agenda of the people who are spreading that fake information? Uh, you know, and, and it can be difficult to know whose agenda it is or why. Um, but I think we do, I think that's the thing we need to tackle rather than, um, you know, and, and showing people that, the, you know, why we vaccinate, what we know and what we don't know. And what we know at the moment is even though these haven't been studied for very long, the consequences of vaccination are way less than the consequences of disease. And so why are people spreading, you know, the information that would kill people by having them have the disease? That's, that's just astonishing to me. I'm with you 100%. And I think it depends on if the people are doing it intentionally or just because they believe it. And there's people that believe it in their hearts that vaccines are dangerous and cause problems without any scientific evidence because they don't need evidence because that's what they believe. But there are other people who know that it is a safe and reasonable way to prevent problems. But because of some sort of malice or position against a company or to save their own reputation continue to perpetuate the false information. And those are the folks I would like to see uh, charged with even criminal charge that during a pandemic, you're 
creating an environment and creating information, which is deepening a public health crisis. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is it is criminal. It is absolutely criminal. And, you know, the fact that that just by, for example, if we targeted those 12 agents of disinformation, we could remove a huge amount <laughs> of that information. You know, it's just being shared, reshared by people, um, you know, but but there's no power to do that. And there seems to be no interest by the companies to do that. Well, but here's the irony is that why they could still go out and, and have a voice. You have actually gotten pushback yes. for your efforts in communicating about the pandemic. So what kind of resistance have you run into? Oh, um, gosh. <laughs> well, I, I'm a woman on the internet. <laughs> strike one. Okay, um, strike one. I yeah. have got pink hair. If you haven't seen me before, I have got shocking pink hair and a lot of it. And a lot of it. Just- yeah. <laughs> so I don't look like um, an expert, right? I don't look like what people would expect an expert to look like. So that's <laughs> strike two. Um, and the other thing that I think is really, really important is that people understand that science isn't, um, it isn't values free, right? So I get a lot of people saying, just tell me the science. I don't want to hear anything about you or your values or your politics. And actually, you have to understand what somebody's values are in order to understand how they interpret evidence. So I'm really clear about saying to people what it is that I believe in, what kind of society I want, because I think that is really relevant to how I look at evidence. You know, and this was quite quite clear to me in, um, I guess, going back to March last year when New Zealand took the, the stance it did, which was we want to protect the health of people. And by doing that, we believe we will protect the economy uh, versus other countries that said, no, protect the economy at all costs. And so when I was doing interviews, for example, with the UK, and they would say, why, what did New Zealand know that made them act differently? And I said, we all saw the same thing. We all saw Italy being overwhelmed, China, you know, having to build hospital in days, and then different countries made different decisions based on their values. And so you have to understand what people's values are. And that has got incredible pushback from some people who don't share my values <laughs> because they think I'm being too political. And it's like, it's, I'm actually not. I'm just talking about my values. And if they happen to, I mean, you know, sometimes they align with different political parties. But actually, this is just me as a human being telling you what I believe in. And so why I would make certain suggestions, whereas there might be other people who would make different suggestions based on that same evidence because they come from a different place. They want a different kind of society. Um, and that's been that's been one of the big pushbacks. Um, and it's just fascinating, you know, that kind of like, we just want your science. And it's like, well, you can't have my science without understanding how I interpret it. Um, and, I, and I stick by that. <laughs> I absolutely stick by that. And I think people need to understand that, you know, this all, it all matters. It all matters in terms of who gets to stay in science, in terms of um, who gets to do, you know, research, what questions they ask are based on the values of the people who are there. And we need to start remembering that um, rather than thinking that, that science is just this magical thing that has no bias or, that, or you know, values put into it. That's just not true. Well, that was the toughest lesson for me to learn as a scientist because, you know, my currency was graphs 
<laughs> uh, uh, you know, citations. I could draw pictures of, of processes and make models for you and explain things mathematically. But when I would do that with a mom in the grocery store who was concerned about pesticides on a tomato, her eyes would glaze yeah. over. And it, it really became a question of values and saying, here's why I care. Because the nice part is, is that when you talk about, and I do this in all my talks and communication about trust, is that you have to demonstrate that you and the listener are on the same page. Yes. And the way you do that is by aligning around some sort of values. And what you find is, is that most people are worried about their health, their community's health, their family's health, um, the well-being of their family and regional economies or state economies or local economies. And when you start talking about things like that, you realize you're all on the same page. So now the science that you talk about won't be viewed with a skeptical or jaundiced eye. It's viewed in a way that says, wow, I really align with this because I realize it's something that shares the values I do. And, and I think that's the, and, and it was a really tough lesson to learn as a scientist where facts and evidence rule. And maybe you've seen the same. Yeah, thing. absolutely. You know, for me, it has been this, you know, 10 to 15 year journey of of uh, going from let me show you my facts to, oh, let me understand what it is that you're concerned about and how can I help you? You know, so for me, with the with the pandemic, um, I was driven by two things really early on. So one is the research that shows that communities that come together are those that survive disasters the best. And the other one is that, you know, if you panic, you'll act, you won't act in your best interests. So while everything was very frightening in those early days, well, and still is frightening now, what I try to do is just be calm and say, this is how, you know, this is how we can protect ourselves. These are the things that we might need to do. You know, this is, this is why we might need to do it um, and try and bring people along. You know, what I was trying, what I knew we, if the government in the government in New Zealand, were going to take this health response. It was very clear that we were going to have to take drastic action. And so what I wanted to do was make sure that people understood that and felt empowered and said, yes, I can do this. I want to protect my friends and family. You know, I feel like I understand why this is happening rather than it being, you know, um, overwhelming and, uh, you know, and everyone sort of panicking and then not acting in their best interests. Um, and so that's been, that's been a real driver for me was just to say, you know, we can do this by being kind to each other, um, you know, and, and, and a lot of that is all evidence-based around around the kinds of messaging that, you know, fearful people, again, won't necessarily act in their best interest. So how do we how do we make people feel empowered and that they're making the right choices for themselves and everybody else rather than um, panicking and then making the wrong choices? Um, and I think New Zealand has shown that that's, that's worked for us and it's depressing that um, other places haven't, haven't taken that up and said, let's give that a try. <laughs> well, one of the things that really, I really related to, I was reading, I read a few articles about your preparation for today. And one of the things that I read was that someone asked you about why you do this and you know, you don't get credit. You don't necessarily get a paycheck for it. Um, it detracts from your time that you could spend in laboratory with researchers, students or anything else. But you said you do it because it's, the right thing to do. And, you know, can you tell me more about that? I mean, how, how does stepping into this benefit you in a way that you can justify that really would encourage others who are listening to take that step? And despite the, the fire that may come, 
step into the into the conversation yeah i mean it's a values based thing right you know for me i i genuinely care about people <laughs> i you know i have really clear ideas about what kind of society i would like to live in and that society is one where you know we don't have children living in cars and people people begging on the streets for insulin right or money for insulin now that's that's not the kind of society i want to live in and so when you know when the pandemic hit um for me it was a really clear I have skills that can be useful. So how can I help? What can I do? And I knew that that was going to, you know, I mean, once once it kicked off, I was like, oh dear, this really is like working two full-time jobs. Um, but again, it was just, it's just, it was just a no brainer for me. It's like, I, you know, I can help. And so I'm going to help. I'm going to answer people's questions because I know that that's the right thing for all of us. And it has come at, at a cost. Um, you know, I, actually my, um, so it's kind of interesting that, that I have the opposite problem with my colleagues where everybody sees the science communication that I do because I'm on the news all the time. I'm in the paper all the time. And so that means they think I don't do science anymore. And, you know, actually, I just I had a I had an annual review the other day and they were like, you know, we're really concerned. We think you need to stop this communication and focus on your research. And that's like, well, actually, you know, we've written five papers this last year. I've submitted several grants. My students just got an A plus, uh, you know, in their latest thesis. Um, I'm doing OK. Like I'm, I'm doing OK. It's, it's ticking along just fine. Actually, the last thing I want to do in the year that we are rolling out a vaccine where we have all this disinformation is pull back and not do that work anymore, because that's the work that gets us through this. And so I guess it's a, you know, if I guess one of the problems is that scientists are not incentivized to do this, right? We are incentivized to get grants, to write papers, to get students through, you know, to have to supervise students. And actually, you know, I, as a scientist, I had always hoped that my research would be, would would have an impact, right? You know, I'd, I'd I'd hoped I would be useful to society, and I thought that might be by being part of you know uh, a crew that found some new antibiotics, and that maybe in 10, 20 years' time we might have done something that contributed. And actually, what I have found is that science communication and my collaboration with Toby Morris has been the way that I have managed to make an impact. You know, the fact that people email me and say, you know, I sent your graphics to all my family. We stayed safe because of you. You know, people say that Toby and I have saved lives like that. That's the kind of impact that I want to have. Um, and so if that means that I have to deal with people saying you're not a scientist anymore, well, I'm just going to keep providing evidence that I am <laughs> by running my lab. But it is difficult. Um, and what I'm trying to do is is work on the inside and saying you need to change the incentive so people you know who do pick this up and do do communication aren't penalized for it right that's the really really important thing is that they you know that if we are going to encourage young scientists to do this and i think that's the right thing to do we cannot let it be at the expense of their careers so we need to put in place something that makes our institutions realize the importance of this and that people have different roles to play and that if people are good at communicating, you know, there is a role for that in their job. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. I mean, I don't know if you know my story, but my uh, university, they told me last year or, you know, end of 2019, you're done. And I was doing, I was doing, you know, maybe, uh, maybe 50 talks a year, but that was because I was doing a good job, especially with farmers and agricultural industries. And they told me 
cancel your 2020 out. And this is before COVID. <laughs> so <laughs> that jokes on them. Um, uh, but, you know, cancel your talks. And the hardest thing for me was to call all these places where I had dates on the calendar, where I'd committed a year half ahead yeah. of time and said, I ain't coming. And, uh, th- and when they, and the funny part is when they took that from me, which was really my passion and, and like the podcast, I can't have any university affiliation with this podcast. I have to be explicit that this is on my own time, my own dime mm-hmm. and done on my own equipment. And I have no, you know, and the reason that is, is because they just don't want to have anything to do with science communication. And I think it's awful. But, but worst of all is that when they took this passion from me, the side of what I do, it affected my research the other way. Yeah. You know, now, now I, you know, five o'clock rolls around at the end of the day. I go, oh, you know what? I'm going and get a sandwich. I don't think, what can I start now to get ahead of tomorrow? Yeah. And, you know, and so it, it takes your fire. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that no matter how much they, they tell you to do it, you know, to not do it, find ways to integrate it in the part of your professional program. And this is for anybody who's listening. Uh, yes, you may never get a pat on the back for it. But do it because of what Susie says. It's the, the right thing right to do. Thing and and I do. think we need to fight back against our institutions. You know, they they have they oh, they're they're creators and holders of knowledge. And by cutting off science communication, they are holding that knowledge, you know, away from people who need it. And to me that again, that's just morally wrong. That's that's not fulfilling their um their obligation you know at least here in new zealand we have a we have a law um that our uh, our universities um have to act as critic and conscience of society so we sort of have a little bit of a clause that allows us to do this um i think for me the problem is how much <laughs> so they're saying you know you're doing too much but you know i mean yes i work really long hours i do this stuff in you know in my spare time it's a saturday morning and i'm talking to you right you know because it's really, really important to me. And I want to change the culture of our institutions um, so that they see the value of it. Because I think this pandemic has shown it is so valuable. You know, having people understand why they need to take certain actions is how we get through crises like this. You know, and this is this is not going to be the last pandemic. And obviously, we've got other crises like climate change and everything. So, we should be doing more of this and encouraging more of this, not shutting down those of us who are good at it. Yeah, and it'll happen. And and it'll happen where uh, universities, some of the big, um, really high profile schools here in the States, they've actually had me come out and say, they would say, how can we design a program you know, to do this? And I'd give them my feedback and they're going to do it. And then my university will say, hey, I got, you know, why are they doing it? And we're not. Maybe we need to. <laughs> but that's the way yeah, that works. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, you know, but that's, you know, I would, I, it, I would be sad if that happened, but I know it'll happen. But, you know, the thing is, is that you pick up and you do leadership in other ways. Yeah. And so I'm making big differences in my community with farmers markets and other things and bringing the communication strategies there and enhancing things for local farmers. So, you know, you, you shut one door, you, another you one opens, and, you yeah. know. Yeah. Well, the last thing I should ask you about is being New Zealander of the year. <laughs> so tell me about that. How do you, how do you get that recognition? <laughs> yeah. So this is a, um, something that happens every year here. It's been going on for more than 10 years now, I think. Um, 
And basically, uh, the public are asked to nominate people who they think of New, New Zealand of the Year. There's actually lots of categories. So there's the New Zealander of the Year, there's Young New Zealander of the Year, there's Senior New Zealander of the Year, there's a kind of local hero category and a local community category. And so the public are asked to nominate people. And then there are all of these different judging panels that then take those nominations and whittle them down to a, a long list of 10 in each category. Um, and then, then at that stage, you get a phone call to say, you're one of our, you know, so you, you don't know anything about it until you get this call to say you're one of the 10 uh, on the long on the long list for this um, this award. And then they uh, then there are more judging to get it to a, a short list of three for each award. And then on the night, they basically you, you find out. Um, and so this has come from non- nominations from the from the public. Um and it's a it's it's a really weird thing because I very very firmly feel that you know we uh, New Zealanders is in the position it is because we acted like a team. You know we we um, the prime minister keeps telling us we're a team of five million and everybody plays their role and sometimes people are on the bench and sometimes other people you know have a more active role but we did it together and so it was a very strange thing to uh, to be awarded this you know, on the basis of how I've helped people get through COVID-19 in New Zealand, when actually, you know, we've got all these invisible people, you know, working at our borders, working at our managed isolation, doing our testing, contact tracing. Um, so I'm very much like the public face, which is a very weird uh, position to be in. But one of the reasons I accepted the nomination was because actually lots of people have said, you know, it's really great to see you really visibly as a woman in science, as a woman who doesn't look like what everyone thinks a scientist looks like but also talks about values and does these things. And so I did it to show that we exist, <laughs> um, you know, and, and to sort of show that importance. Uh, and so many people have got back to me saying it's so fantastic to see a scientist there rather than a sports person or an entrepreneur of some sort. Um, and so that's been really, really cool. And the other funny thing is, so I, 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 I don't, um, I'm a, I'm a, I don't even know how to describe my, my dress sense, but it's, um, it's a lot of black, uh, and I'm not, and I'm, and I'm a fat woman, so I don't, I don't wear cocktail dresses. Uh, and this was a very big awards night and I really fretted about, oh gosh, what should I wear to this thing? And I, and it, the invitation had very clearly said it's black tie. So very fancy, but they also said it could be your version of black tie. And so I wore my version of black tie and I had so many people contact me afterwards saying it was so lovely to see you being unashamedly you at this event where you could have caved and sort of tried to wear a cocktail dress or some kind of ball gown. And, uh, and you were just, you know, I had my sparkly Doc Martens on. I was very clearly me. And lots of people, that's one of the reasons why they've really liked it is that somebody who is unashamedly themselves is kind of up there as as a role model and so it's a yeah it's a really amazing thing I guess um but that visibility I think is is important for those and I've had so many people say you know I was come going to do you know doing science and I I was told not to dye my hair and actually I've seen you succeeding and so I'm gonna I'm gonna push back against that Um, and I love (laughs) I love that I love that people are saying no actually I can be myself and I, I love that change. And I, I would love to see the change in the culture of science where we let more of that individuality and a little more of the rule breakers come in. Um, the people who, because the rule breakers are what makes science exciting. And, you know, I, I love the fact that you're having a bigger influence and that you've got a, a bigger audience that people wrote to me and say, you got to interview Susie, <laughs> you know, or Dr. Wiles, you know. And, um, and I thought that was fantastic. And I appreciate that you uh, were willing to join me here today. 
And I hope we can do it again sometime, oh. um, you know, maybe in a different context. Yeah. But, you know. but if people wanted to learn more about you or, or follow you on social media, where would they follow um, you? I, so I'm a, I'm a tweeter. So um, you, you just have to be able to spell my name. So I'm at Susie W. Um, uh, so S-I-O-U-X-S-I-E-W. Um, yeah, I mean, just, gosh, you can Google me. I do um, write uh, about the pandemic on uh, the spinoff. So that's the spinoff.co.nz. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe I can send you some links to some of our little animations and various things and people can have a look at that. Uh, but I'm... That's great. I could I could put that in the show notes because some of those stories are fantastic. I, I you know, and I hate to divert from a conclusion <laughs> here, but one of the things that I found that was so cool in the spinoff was a discussion because your tracing and testing are so good in New Zealand that when a new breakout starts, you guys can chase it back to, okay, there's the garbage can lid, the, the bit trash bin lid <laughs> where it all started. Yeah, so actually, and, 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 and it turns out that case wasn't, a, wasn't a garbage lid at all. It was um, actually people in, uh, so in managed isolation where they get, they get tested at certain days uh, and it turns out when we look at the CCTV footage, there was basically something like a 30 second gap between somebody's door opening, somebody who turned out to have the virus, their door opening because they were swabbed at their hotel room door and the next person's door opening uh, for them to be swabbed. And that's how the virus we think transmitted. So we, that, that, that is the extent to which we are trying to pin down how transmission happens. It's just amazing. <laughs> So, so, you know, please, you know, we have a good amount of listeners to the podcast and I would love it if you checked out, uh, Dr. Wiles, uh, stuff, the, the, uh, cartoons are fantastic. Share them with your family and friends and, uh, and certainly follow her on social media. So Dr. Susie Wiles, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today. It was great. Oh, thanks very much for having me. And as everybody else, thank you very much for joining us and listening to this particular episode. Uh, write reviews on iTunes. There's lots of them there. Always can use more. We are one of the top rated uh, life sciences podcasts in iTunes, especially in the area of biotech. And we really appreciate that. I really appreciate it. I say we like it's more than me now. Uh, I really appreciate it. You're the wind beneath my wings. Uh, but So thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra. 
the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Collabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.